So last week we uh, we had the privilege of gathering together and just getting some really rich time in prayer. Um, I don't know about you guys. I'm just so thankful for for Pastor Colin and how the Lord leads um, in his in and through his life. Um, I know for me, oftentimes I'm really structured in my mind how it works, really structured, and so just thankful that. Uh, his leading just by the spirit. You know, I remember just talking afterwards to different people and, and different people just being like, man, that just really ministered to my heart. I'm just so thankful. Just want to probably just appreciate Colin so much just because he's so faithful to, to let the spirit lead in his life, you know, and just such an example. Um, so just, just really love and appreciate you, buddy. Thank you so much. Um, this week we are going to jump back into Romans. And so if you're new here, um, we're so, so grateful and so thankful that you're here. Um, know that you're loved, know that you're appreciated. Um, we have been going through a journey in Romans. And so week by week, um, w- the reason we do this is because we think that the scriptures speak. We believe that really the Bible is relevant and it's true and what we need to do is get out of its way. And so we want to lift up the scriptures and we want to allow people to hear the scriptures because if you hear the Bible, if you really hear its message, it will transform the way that you think and the way that you live. And so that's why we are faithful to sit and to to preach through the book of Romans chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is because we believe that God uses it and God speaks through it. So last... uh, uh, the last time we were in Romans, uh, we were in Romans chapter 5, and so if you have your Bibles now, it would be a good time to open up to Romans chapter 5. Um, Pastor Colin preached uh, two weeks ago on Romans chapter 5, verses 1 um, through 11. And one of the things that we learned in, in that text is that by Christ's death on the cross, by his resurrection, that we can have peace with God. That we can have peace with God. You see that the the Christian message is that we sin and that because of our sin we are at war with God. Not necessarily God at war with us, but us at war with God. That we have declared and waged a war that we want our way over his way. And one of the things that the the cross declares is that now through and because of Jesus we can have peace. We can have peace. In a, a world that is constantly in strife. I mean, it doesn't take long to look at Facebook and to see that people don't like each other very much. You know, you, you see all the conflict, you see all the disagreement, you see all the anger, all the strife, even within families. And it's such a refreshing and good news to know that, that we can have peace. We can have peace with God. And because we can have peace with God, we can have peace with others. And so in that chapter 5, he goes on and he talks about that we have peace with God. And because of this peace with God, we now have access to God, we can actually stand before Him and and talk to Him and know that He hears us and knows that and we can know that He talks to us as well. And it goes on. It says that it changes when you know this. It changes your perspective when you actually know that God hears you and that God speaks to you. It changes your perspective. And we talked about that it changes your perspective in the midst of suffering. Why? Because we know God is good and we know that His purposes and suffering are for His glory and for our good. And so it talks about that suffering ultimately is going to produce this hope in us, a hope that this world isn't all that there is, a hope that there's more. You see, that that's what God is up to when we deal with suffering, and it is that God is helping us to realize that you are made for something bigger than what this world has to offer, is that this world is too small to fill the hopes of a creature made in the image of God. And so... He really does. Paul really details a lot of different things in chapter 5, talking about all these benefits. And there's a question that would have been raised in the mind of Paul's readers, right? Paul's readers would have read this this beginning of the introduction in chapter 5, and they would have said, how can one action really do all of this? How can one one action actually bring all these benefits, actually make all this impact that you're saying that it makes, Paul? 
And it's to this question of how one action can have massive implications, how one choice can change everything that Paul turns. And so this is what our text is going to talk about is the impact that one choice, that one action can actually make. So if you'll read with me, we're going to look at verse 12 and we're going to read on through verse 21. Starts and it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you would take a moment, I'm going to pray for you, and would you pray for me? Father, we pray that as we speak and as we read and as we hear your word proclaimed that your spirit would use it god i pray that right now that you would remove distractions from our minds that um, you would give us a clear mind and an open heart that we would be open to what you would have to say to us and so we ask in these moments that you would speak that we would listen and that you would change us to be more like jesus it's in your name that we pray christ amen so if you're here and you're not a Christian, there's a couple things I hope as you read this passage that you think about. Okay, First, I hope that you're asking this question. Um, are selfishness, pride, death, are those things just a natural part of the world? Has the world always been that way, or is there a time when those things weren't? Has evil always been around, or was there a point in time at which there wasn't evil? Because it makes a big difference how you answer that question. If it's always been around always been around then what hope is it that there it won't be again what hope is there that it won't be that it will continue on so do those things are those things just a natural part of the world or did they have an entrance did they have a beginning will there be a time where they won't rule over humanity so for the i hope you're thinking about those things right as we journey through this passage i hope you think about that is this just the way it is or is there hope for change was there a time where this wasn't and will there be a time where this isn't again if you're a Christian, what I hope that you ask yourself is, who are you following? Who are you following? Each day we get to wake up and we get a choice about who we're going to follow, how we're going to live our life, what we're going to imitate. And so one of the big ways you can find out who you're following 
is look at what are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? What do you find confidence? What do you find pride in? What are you boasting in? Because that reveals who you're following. That reveals what you find important. You call somebody when you think something is important and you want to share with them, right? And so what is it that you're excited about? What is it that you're boasting? Because that shows what your passion is and who you're following, who you're following. So I hope you'll keep those, those in mind as we read this text, that you'll kind of ask yourself these questions. Now, the text breaks down into three different parts. First, 12 through 14, it talks about the entrance of sin. It talks about the entrance of sin and death, the introduction of these things. Um, the second part is it compares Christ and Adam. So in verses, uh, in verses 15 through 17, it, it strikes up this comparison. It says, let's look at Christ and let's look at Adam, and let's see how they stack in comparison to each other. And then the last one is that it concludes. It makes some summary remarks and says, okay, what can we, what can we figure out about the headship of Adam and the headship of Christ? What difference does it make? So if there's a, a big idea, if there's anything that I want you to take, there's one big kind of idea that reigns through the whole passage, through the whole sermon. It's this. It's that death reigned in Adam, right? Death reigned in Adam, but grace and life reign in Jesus Christ, right? Death reigned in Adam, but grace and life reign in Jesus Christ, right? So that's the, that's the big idea. If we're to get anything, I want you to grab a hold of that and hold on to that as we kind of journey through this passage. So verse 12, if you look at verse 12 with me, it talks about, it says, therefore, just as sin came into the world. Now, the Christian story, sometimes it's hard for us to imagine. I'll be honest, one of the things that it's hard for me to do is sometimes it's hard for me to think about what it's like to be in a world without sin. Because our lives are marked by it so much. But you see, this is exactly where the Bible starts. It talks about a world, a place where there was no sin talks about a world where there was peace, where we didn't have to worry about CEOs being greedy and trying to take from the poor. We didn't have to have strife and anger and see families being torn apart. It talks about a, a world in which we didn't have to worry about wars in the Middle East and sending our troops over and where there's just wars. A place where we didn't struggle personally with pride, where there wasn't anxiety, where you didn't have depression or doubt, where these things were foreign. Think about this. Think about it. See, it was a place where the desire of our heart was actually to love others. It was actually to love God. You see, the Bible talks about it as this rhythm, as this balance. It talks about this idea of shalom. And what shalom means is it means utter peace, complete wholeness. Think of an orchestra. I don't know if you ever heard an orchestra or if you ever heard a beautiful piece of music. But what happens in that moment is that each piece plays its part exactly right. And you see, it's only when each of those pieces plays in harmony with each of the other pieces that you have this beautiful music. And that's what creation was like. You see, all the things that God had made, as well as humanity and God, everything was operating in this wholeness, in this unity. And so it was creating this beautiful music that everyone could hear and everyone could see. It was something to behold. But alas, in the midst of this very, very good story, in the midst of something that was perfect and something that was completely harmonious, we know we call it the fall, right? And, and we know the story. We know what happened. But God created Adam and Eve, our progenitors, our great ancestors, and he stuck them in the garden to flourish, right? I mean, it was for human flourishing, this place where they could seek out God and they could discover. Imagine this. I mean, they were to discover and enjoy all of God's good gifts, and they were to, to use them as they pleased because their hearts were pure. God sticks them in a garden. And he says, listen, there's only one thing I, I, 
I command you not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's to protect them. But it's not just to protect them, but it's also because love desires a choice. To love somebody, there has to be some kind of choice in the fact, right? And so God gave them this opportunity, this choice to act upon obedience, to choose to love him in return, to choose to love him in return. And they didn't, right? We don't know for how long. They They might have resisted. They might not have eaten the tree for years, for decades. The Bible doesn't say. But we know that at some point in time, the serpent came in and he deceived Eve, right? He, he talked to Eve and he told her a lie, right? And Eve was deceived, right? She saw that the tree was delight to the eyes. It was, it was you know, good to make one wise, that it was pleasing, that it would satisfy. And so she took of it, right? And she ate. And in that moment, she passed to her husband. And here's the thing. Adam wasn't like out. Adam was right next to her. It says, and her husband who was with her. And so it was Adam's job to protect his wife. It was Adam's job to lead her, to guide her, to shepherd her, to be her shelter, right? And Adam sat by and he let his wife walk in disobedience to the the command that God had given. Not only that, but Adam then took. And when he took, he ate and he partook. You see, their disobedience, it wasn't just of eating the fruit. Because often we, we think about that and like, did everything come in this world? Did all the harm, all the evil come from just eating a fruit? You see, that's not what really happened. It wasn't just eating a fruit. It's in that moment that they believed a lie. It's in that moment that they made an exchange where they said that I am a better God than you are. They said, I know what is better for my my future, for I'm a better provider. And in that moment, they exchanged. They made an exchange of their trust, of their heart. They traded their heart from trusting in God to trusting in themselves and their own ability. And it's this exchange from being God-centered to being man-centered that has plagued us ever since, is that we find our trust in ourselves and our ability, and we doubt, and we have a hard time trusting in God and his goodness. And you see, it was this exchange that ruptured our relationship with God. It broke it. It broke the harmony. It tore apart the beautiful orchestra that God had. Now, God said, in that moment, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, right? So he talks about the consequences, talks about the consequences of sin. But when you read the story, when you read Genesis, it they don't die immediately, right? I mean, they eat, and actually they live quite a long time, you know? I mean, I'd be happy. I think all of us would be to live as long as they did. Um, and so they don't die for a while. So what did God mean, you will die? What does he mean that you'll die? Well, he means that primarily they would die spiritually. So... It's really important because the Bible talks about that what life is, life is being unified and being correctly related to God. Because it's in the moment that they sin that their relationship with God is broken and they are sent out of the garden. Right? The tree of life, the tree of life that that how they were immortal, we know that Adam and Eve would have lived forever. Whether that's because it was in God's presence or because of God's good gift of the tree of life. We don't, we don't know. But either way, the garden is cut off. There's a, they're sent out of the garden, and there's an angel that guards the garden to keep them from coming. And you see, it's this cutting off. It's this separation of relationship that is the cause of their death, their physical death. And this is what we see. Spiritual death precedes physical death and is the cause of physical death. And often we don't think about that. We just look at death in general. We look at the physical effects of death, and you don't think that actually all of this is a result of something much deeper, of a much more foundational problem. You see, it's, 
it's like a a flower cut off from a stem. You ever got a beautiful bouquet of flowers? Right? They're going to die, aren't they? Right? They're they're beautiful. They last but for a moment. They last for maybe a week at most too if you put that nice plant fertilizer thing in it. You know, it'll it'll last a little bit longer, but it still is going to die, right? Why? Because it's cut off from the foundation. It's cut off from its root. And you see that this is the truth of us. This is the truth of Adam and Eve, is that they were cut off from their foundation. And while seemingly they looked alive, while they lasted all that time, they were already dead. This is the truth for us. The Bible talks about that outside of Christ, all of us are born dead spiritually, and that we are walking dead, that we're like those flowers. We might look very much alive, and we might flourish for a time, but yet we will wither. We are a mist that appears for a while, and then we are gone. And so we see the consequences, right? The consequences of sin. James 1.14, it talks about this process. It talks about this process in their life and in our lives. It says, you know, let, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own sinful desire. And desire, when it is conceived... When it is given birth, when it's conceived, it brings forth death or it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's full grown, when it, sin is fully matured, when it's fully ripened, it brings forth death. It brings forth death. And so you see the sinful desire. When you lay waste, when you allow sinful desire to have a hold of you, it will bring forth sin. And when sin begins to find a stronghold, it will ravage your life, and it will bring forth death. What you think is enticing will kill you. It will kill you. And so we see. We see the effects of it. Now, there's an important part. If you look again at verse 12 with me, it talks about, it says that that through this one man, through Adam, that sin and death has spread, right? Think of, the, think of a, a small fire in a prairie, right? You start a little match, a little tiny match, and it starts a wildfire, right? And you see a whole forest set ablaze by such a small spark. And this is what it was like. You see it in the Bible. In Genesis, right after Adam and Eve sinned, the very next story you have is Cain and Abel. And you see that Cain murders his brother. Death is prevalent now. And it's not only a chapter later that you begin and you see and you look at Noah. And by this time, all the inclinations of man heart were evil all the time. That there wasn't a single desire for good. And so you see that death and sin spreads like a wildfire across the plain of humanity. That it takes over and it begins to destroy and kill all that are underneath its reign. Now, Later on it says, and, and still again in verse 12, it says, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Right? Death spread to all men because all sinned. What does that mean? What does it mean that death spread to all men because all sinned? Now there's two ways that we can read this. There's two interpretive ways. Now, and the Greek grammar can go either way. Right? There's one way that says, well, listen, Adam sinned and all of us, like Adam, sin." And so because all of us are like Adam and we sin like Adam, we disobey God, we die. That's one way that people read that is that we're, we're sinners just like Adam was. And since we're sinners just like Adam was, we die like Adam died. Okay? That's one way people read this. The other way, and I think the true and the right way that it, this is to be read, is that it said Adam sinned and all of us are guilty because Adam sinned. Now, that's hard. Like, I'll, I'll say that again because that, that should, if you're actually reading that, if you're hearing that correctly, that should rub you raw. Right? You should, you should right now kind of be in like, hold on a second, how am I guilty for what Adam did? You should have some pushback there, at least 
maybe I did. Um, and so you you read that, and, and what it is saying is it's saying, listen, in in Adam, because Adam is our head. Adam was the first among all of humanity because he sinned. All of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. Now, there's two ways in which this is. First, there's a sinful nature, right? There's a nature that is passed down. Adam is our great, great forefather. He's our ancestor, and we are related to him physically, right? And so his seed, his genes are literally passed down to us, and so we have the same fallen nature that Adam has. And so there's a physical part of this, but it's not just physical, right? There's what's called a federal headship, right? It's a fancy word, but there's a federal headship, and that Adam's sin and Adam's choice stood for all of us. Adam was, as it were, was our representative. Adam was the one put forward to fight for us, to battle for us. And because of his choice, all of us are guilty. All of us are guilty. Now, a lot of us are, I mean, we are Western Americans. And so we say, listen, I want my choice. My choice is what matters. My individual freedom. I dictate my future. Don't tell me otherwise. Right? I mean, all of us, that's what's kind of in the current in our culture is that we get to choose you know, our own destiny. We get to make our own fate. But this isn't true. And some very fundamental observations in your own life will tell you it. What about your parents? You didn't choose who your parents were. You didn't choose where you'd be born. You didn't choose what you'd look like. You didn't choose a lot of your personality either. A lot of your personality is genetic. There's a lot of things about you that you didn't choose that actually was imparted to you by another. Imparted to you by another. And so you see that your life is affected by other people, not just by your own choices. So it's it's not just that, but we see this also with a lawyer, right? If you've committed a crime or if you've been uh, indicted for committing a crime, then guess what? Most of us aren't going to represent ourselves. At least that wouldn't probably be a wise choice. Um, most of us are going to have someone else represent us, right? We're going to have a lawyer that's going to come and stand in our stead, and he's going to plead our case. Often we probably won't even be in the courtroom at times, right? But he will stand entirely for us and plead and, and tell our case and stand in our stead. And how the judge renders his arguments and his verdict will be how we're rendered, will be how we're judged. And so you see that another person's choices and their actions will be instead for us. But corporately we see this, right? Corporately we see this as a country, right? Because we have ambassadors, we have representatives, we have a president, right? We have legislation that says that they make choices and they dictate and affect us, right? I mean, there are countries where if you declare war, you're at war, Right, And their choice affects the entire country. Now, you can move out of the country, but your country is still at war. And so that's their choices right, affect the entire nation, and they've been put in that. And there's reasons for that. right? I mean there's reasons that we don't vote on wars because that wouldn't go well. There's reasons we elect people to, to, to do that, whether it's wise or not um, is, is another choice that we can talk about. Um, but their choices affect all of us. Right? And the Bible talks about this too, that, that other people's choices actually affect us. You see it very, very early on. Right? You see with Abraham and this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. Right? Abraham goes and he, he basically like lays it down and, and you know beats a bunch of kings and gets this spoil of war. And he's going back from getting his spoils and he meets this king called Melchizedek. And he gives him a tenth of what he, what he got in his spoils of war. Right, and it says in that moment that that Abraham was tithing to this this Melchizedek, to this figure, right, and that Melchizedek stood for a head, and Abraham stood for a head for all these people, and that was why the people were to tithe, they were to give because they were the heads, they were the symbols. Another clear, maybe clearer example is look at David and Goliath, 
right? Look at David and Goliath. You have that Israel and the Philistines are at war, right? They're waging war. Instead of just all-out massacre upon one another, they say, hey, listen, let's put two people together, and whoever wins, that's who wins. It saves a lot of bloodshed, and it's quicker. And so they put forth Goliath, you know, this huge figure, you know, was it nine, ten feet tall? And then nobody from Israel comes up. Finally, finally, little David runs, right? David, David comes up, and he trusts in the Lord, and he, he kills Goliath, right? In that moment, David stood, and his victory was the victory for all of Israel, right? And, and Goliath's failure was a failure for all of Philistine. And so we see this idea of headship, that, that the choices of another affect us, affect us. But some of the... Some of the pushbacks that I know that at least I had as I was processing through this is that we have problems with headship because, one, we don't like people standing in for us, right? We as Americans, we say, listen, I want to wage the war. Give me my shot in the garden. Let me do it. You know, I can, you know, like, let me fight. And so we have this kind of mindset of, like, I'll do better than they'll do. I don't need somebody to represent me, right? The second kind of objection that I think often we have is this, is that we're like, listen, hey, I didn't even get to pick my representative, you know, I didn't even get a vote in the matter. Can I go back? Can I get a vote, you know, in what I want? And and the reason we have these objections, the reason we kind of have this pushback against this is because we want a representative to be fair, right? I think all of us and, and wherever we're voting for, we want the person that's representing us. We wanted them to be like us. We want them to be like us, to think like us, to act like us, to, to you know, to represent us well. We want those things, right? And that's why we object. We object because we think that it wasn't fair because he didn't think like us or he didn't know us or he didn't really see it. But do you understand that it's when we're thinking like this that we're actually thinking like God? It's when we're actually thinking like God because God made Adam to be like us in every way. You see, it's we have to humble ourselves and to think that we won't do a better job of picking somebody than God does. Right? That's a little arrogant. How many years have you been alive? You know, and you think that you can make a better decision than God. You know, let's let's humble ourselves a little bit and stand in front of maybe God's wisdom. So God picked Adam, but not, more than that, God didn't just pick Adam. God created Adam. God created Adam out of the dust to be exactly like we are, to think, to act, to be like exactly as we would. And so Adam was a fair representative for us. Where Adam failed, we would fail. Adam stands in our stead, and he is like us. So, Adam was our head. Adam's sin was all of our sin. And because he is guilty, we are guilty. We are born into this. Just as much, and here's the thing, whether you like it or not, some of us are like, listen, I really don't like this. Join the club. I don't think any of us likes this. I don't think anybody says, yes, I'm glad that I was born into Adam. You know, no. All of us are stuck in this, but it's the same thing. We didn't get to choose our parents, right? And and this is how what we've been inherited. This is what we've been given. But this isn't the end of it, right? This isn't this isn't the end of it, right? There's there's another way. And this is what Paul turns to in verses 15 through 17, is that Paul compares. He goes, let's look at let's look at the headship of of Adam and look look at the headship of Christ. Because see, there's really good news about headship. I just talked about a lot of bad news. Right? I just talked about a lot of bad news about the headship of Adam, but here's the thing. If there was one that was like Adam that failed, then there can be another like Adam, right? a second Adam that can come, that can succeed where he failed. See, headship can both be a blessing. It can be both be a curse and a blessing. 
And so we've talked about the curse. Let's let's look at a little bit of, of the blessing. And so in verses 15 through 17, Paul talks about four ways in which the headship of Christ is different, is different and actually superior than the headship of Adam. And so the first one that we see is motivation, right? Whereas Adam, when Adam sinned, his motivation was selfishness, right? Adam saw and he deliberately disobeyed. And often we know the same thing. Most of us have had times in our life where we say, I know this is wrong, but I don't care, you know, and we like get in our car and we willfully do sin, right? We like we don't want to hear anybody around us because we want to do what we want to do. And so all of us at times have been like Adam, in which we have willfully selfishly gone about seeking out what we wanted to do. But you see, Christ wasn't like that. Christ's motivation was different. Whereas Adam was selfish, Christ was selfless. It talks about that he endured the cross, despising its shame, but he endured for the joy that was set before him. You see, Christ went to the cross with, with us on his mind, thinking of you, thinking of me, thinking of the church that he would purchase, the saints that he would, he would have, thinking of his church, thinking of his bride. Christ went to the cross with a selfless mindset, with a selfless attitude, to give rather than to take. To be generous rather than to rather than to steal. So their motivation is very different. You see motivation of selfishness versus a motivation of selflessness. Their results are also different. Adam brought condemnation. Right? It, it talks about it says that there is trespass, right? And trespass literally means to like to cross a boundary. You know, God draws a line and he says, Don't cross here. Trespass means to like look at it and say, put a foot over and cross it. And that's what God says. So you have Adam's trespass, and it brings judgment, right? It, got, it brought God's judgment. God is just, and it's good news. Listen, if you're not a, if you're not a Christian, one of the, the one of the primary things I struggle at, with atheism is that there's no such thing as justice. There there isn't. How I don't know how you can sleep at night knowing that all the evil that goes on in the world and knowing that there is no justice in this world. There is no such thing as those that have done wrong will actually get what what's coming to them. And so there's judgment, there's justice that happens because of Adam's sin. And he's cast out of the garden. And because of that, there's condemnation, right? They are condemned because they refused, they, they disbelieved, right? And it says all of us in Adam, that's what happens, is that there's condemnation, that we're born condemned because of our disbelief, because of our separation from God. But you see, in Christ, it says that there's justification, there's justification, right? And that word justification, we've talked about it before, but it means just as if I didn't sin. And it's even more than that. It's not just God taking away our sin, but also giving us life. There's an exchange that happens. We impute our sin, we give our sin to Jesus, and Jesus gives us his life and his righteousness. The whole book, uh, the whole past couple chapters of Romans from chapter 321 to, to the end of this is actually talking about justification, right? That's, that's the point of what it's talking about. And what it says, it says justification will humble you. Listen, the reason that you are disagreeing and the reason you have problems in your relationships, right? A lot of us say, listen, I don't get along with this person. I fight with this person. I have hard times with this person. Can I talk to you? I think the reason that that is is because you don't really understand what it means that you are justified by faith. Because when you understand that you were justified by faith, that you were made right with God, not because you were good. God didn't look at you and say, oh, you've done a lot of these good things, so I'm going to make you right with me. No, you were justified sheerly by trusting in God. When you believe that, it cuts out all of your ability to boast. You can't look at somebody and say, well, I'm better than you. 
because I've done X, Y, and Z. No, you're no better than anybody else. And that, what that does is it destroys any root of pride in your heart, and it brings humility. Humility will bring peace and unity in your relationships. Do you have peace and unity in your relationships, or is it marked by pride and strife? I promise you, you're not going to have peace and unity by just thinking about peace and unity. You're going to have peace and unity by realizing that you stand before God by his grace alone. So it will, it will unify you, but not only that, it will send you out. It will send you out. Because you see, when you're seeking to work for God, when you're saying, listen, God, I'm doing all these things so that you'll love me, so that you'll be pleased with me, that's going to run you ragged. You're going to simply be thinking about what's owed me, and it's going to make you bitter, and it's going to make you angry when you don't get what you think is owed to you. And guess what? That same perspective that you have towards God is going to be what you have towards others. You're going to look at them, and you're going to say, why don't you give me what's owed to me? I've done this. Why don't you do this? And you're going to, you're going to think about this give-and-take relationship, this tick-for-tack. But we understand that God loves you despite your sin, that God showers you with grace. It changes the motive of your heart. God's no longer simply this judge, but actually he's also a loving father who has given you abundant love and abundant grace. And so you see that love is God's motive, and you begin to actually enjoy God. You begin to be satisfied in God. And when that happens, when that happens, you'll begin to actually love other people. Only, only then will you begin to love other people deeply and truly, and you'll begin to share the gospel. Because you'll understand that God can change the motive of your heart. God can change. And the hardest sinner, the person that you think is the farthest from God, God can change their heart. Would we be faithful to believe that? Because often we look at people and we dismiss them. We look at people and think, oh, they're too far. I don't want to share. It'd be too laborsome. I'm too afraid of what they'll think of me. And we run all these long lists of excuses rather than actually being bold enough to say, listen, God's love for me was when I didn't even want him. How much more should I love those? And so justification by faith, it humbles us and it also sends us out. It also fills our hearts with love for others. Right? And so Christ, we had trespasses. Christ gives us a free gift of grace, and it leads to us being just as if we didn't sin, standing before him as, as blameless, as holy, as saints, rather than just sinners. Another way that they're different is their power, right? You see, Adam merely got justice, right? He, he, he broke the law, he got justice, whereas you see the power for Christ, right? You see the power is different, whereas there was one trespass, there were many sins, Right? There are many trespasses, many, many sins, and there is one act of goodness, one selflessness, one act that covered all of them. And so you see the, the power that is in Christ's action is that there was one act. His cross, he said it's finished. Right, It's done. And so what that means is it means that you don't need to work for your salvation any longer because it's been done for you. Christ has, has sacrificed himself that you might receive it freely. You might understand it's a gift given to you that you would rest in that. You would receive it. You would rest in that. Right? And so the power is different. And then, well, let's stop here. I want to stop here and real quick talk about this word. Um, so you see grace, there, this text is, is full of, uh, of important words, right? Rain is a really important word. It's used six times. And one of the ones that you see here is, is abundant, right? Abundant grace. And what that means, this word abundant, is it's parousia. And what it means is it means overflowing Right? It means like super grace, basically. Think of like super grace. Okay? And I want you to think of this picture. I want you to think of a dry desert land, right? A barren wasteland, one that has nothing but cracks in it. You know what I'm thinking of, right? You you've seen pictures of it where there's nothing around and all that you see is is a soil cracked by the dry heat. 
you have this, and what you have now is you have a change that happens. And now you have these massive storm clouds that begin to come over, and what you see is the heavens open, and there's a deluge, I mean, of just rain. It feels like there's buckets coming from the heavens. And all of this rain showers upon this dry and desolate land, and it does so for days and for days and for days. And what once used to be dry and cracked and barren, now you see becomes fertile. Soil begins to emerge, and you begin to see life come forth. This is the idea of what God's grace does, is that he showers us with his love and his grace so that once what once was dead now becomes alive and begins to bear fruit. It's this idea in Psalm 23. It talks about, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? And he goes and he talks about the ways that the shepherd leads us. He talks about that he leads us both beside still waters, right? Uh, and he leads us in the valley of shadow of death. But there's one part in particular he talks about. He says, He he makes a table, he prepares a table before the presence of my enemies. And it says, and he makes my cup overflow. He makes my cup overflow. It's the image of us holding out our cup and God bringing a bucket and dumping our cup to where we can't even handle as much as he's pouring in. It's this abundant grace that he gives. This is what it means. And so you see the power of God is far greater. Your sin Will never separate, can never separate you from God because God's grace is power, more powerful than your sin. You're not more powerful than God. And so your sin, unless you choose, your sin cannot keep you if you trust in him. You, you'll, you can never be too bad. You can never do too much. God's grace is always stronger and more powerful than you are if you will receive it, if you will be open to take it in. So the last thing that we see in how Christ and how Adam's headship are different is that this is actually in chapter 6, but I want to bring it in now because it's really poignant, is we see that the union is different. We've talked about the, the motivation is different. We've talked about the results different. We've talked about the power. And now we see that the union is different, right? We are unified to Adam physically. I mean, like, right, he's our great, great ancestor, and because him and Eve had sons, we are here. And so we are related to them physically, but we're related to Christ through faith. Right? We are related to Christ through faith. It is through our trust in him. It is through placing and making a trust exchange that we are bound to him, that we are unified to him. We're tied together with him. With Him. The transformation is complete. Right? When you see here in, in verse, uh, verse 17, look in verse 17 with, with me. He talks about here. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. That idea of reigning in life. So what you had before is you had sin and death reign over us. They're, sin and death are a king. They're a tyrant, right? Decimating and consuming everything underneath their reign. We've seen it, right? You've seen it in your life. Death and sin will reign, right? We constantly, we're aware of our frailty. Probably not a year goes by where somebody that you know or somebody you kn that you know that you have a friend with it has someone die. And so we are constantly being brought aware that that death is there. And sin is always waging war against us. And so we see this reign of death and sin. But what a transformation happens. It says not only do we just transfer, right? It talks about this reign of grace, but it says that we reign with him. Right? It says that we actually reign, that we go from being slaves to we now are are princes and princesses that we actually get to walk and abide with with Jesus. In uh, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, it says this. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness 
and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been delivered from this kingdom and we've been transferred. Here, Revelation, Revelation 22, um, verse 2 through 5. Revelation is like is the consummation, is the end of the story. And here what, what happens at the end of the story. It says, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Tree of life, right? So at the end of the story, we now have access once again to the tree of life. It's brought back in the picture. This is the only other time you see the tree of life in the whole book. Beginning and the end. It goes on, it says, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding each fruit in its month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. The Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The kingdom is transferred. We begin to reign with God, co-heirs, co-laborers with him. How are we living out that reign here and now? God has given us a reign, right, to rule. This is what Adam was given. Think about it. Remember what Adam was made for. Adam was made to reign and to rule over creation. He was to be a good steward, right? He was to watch over his wife. He was to care for the garden that God had given to him, and he was to reflect God's glory to all of those things. And we are now called back to live in light of that reign, to live the same way that God had made us, to be renewed in the image. So I want to sum up. There's a, there's a part here that talks about a free gift. And we've talked about this quite a bit already, just that grace is unmerited, that grace is free. Right? And he uses this term three different times. He talks about this, this free gift that's given to you. And what it means is it means you can't work for it. It means you can't earn it. It means you can't pay it back. It means that you just need to be thankful for it. That when you've received it, that you need to understand it, you need to reflect upon it, and you need to be thankful for it. You need to be grateful that you've got it. You see, it talks about it here, it says, the law, the law came to increase sin. The point of the law was that we would realize that we're all guilty, that we haven't committed it. Keller says this, Tim Keller says this, he says he's teaching us it's not a matter of knowing more or having another discipline or trick or trying harder. We all have a lack of willingness and ability. We don't need to try harder or know more. We need a rescue. Do you, this is so true because oftentimes what happens is that, listen, you'll hear a sermon or you go to a Bible study and what goes on in your mind is you just say, well, listen, if I just, I just need to try harder. I just need to read the Bible more. I just need to go out and evangelize more. I just need to work harder. And you're, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Listen, it's not that we don't have effort, right? We should put forth effort. But, but the point of it is that, listen, we all lack a willingness and ability and desire. And so what happens is that we're changed by faith. We're changed by faith. We're changed by putting our faith in Jesus and trusting him that he will live in and through us. It's by seeing him, it's by beholding him, by being satisfied in him, that we will then live out all of these other things. It says that the chief end of man is to glorify God. How? By enjoying him forever. Do you enjoy God? Do you, do you actually enjoy God? Or do you see that God is just a duty? 
something that you have to come to on Sundays or that every once in a while you'll pay, you know, tithe to or that you'll read the Bible every once in a while just to appease him. When your mindset is that, you strip Christianity of its whole basis. God is not glorified by your begrudging submission to rules. God is glorified by you enjoying his good gifts and enjoying his presence. He loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And it's by being with him, by, by being satisfied in him, that we will naturally then glorify him. So John Stott sums this up. He says, So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or spiritually dead, depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we still belong to the old humanity, initiated by Adam, or to the new humanity, initiated by Christ. Which humanity do you belong to? Which humanity are we walking in? The old humanity that stands in Adam's headship or the new humanity that is marked by Christ? So I have two applications and then we're going to worship and we're going to, we're going to sing. First one, if you're not a Christian, I'm going to ask you why. Why are you not a Christian? What is holding you back? What is keeping you from giving your heart to Christ? What do you think is more important? Because here's the truth. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There is no in-between, right? There will be a day at which we will either get justice when we stand before God or there is a day where we receive grace. There is no in-between. We don't receive some justice and some grace. We receive either entire justice or entire grace. We either stand entirely in Adam or entirely in Christ. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Listen, you can fool me, you can fool a lot of people, you can't fool God. God sees your heart, he knows exactly where you're at. And it's to him that you will stand. I love you, and I want you to stand before him in Christ. I want you to stand before him in grace. There will be no greater gift than to to trust in him. Please, I urge you, give your life to him, because he is a much better Lord than you are. He's a much better sovereign than you could ever be. Whatever you think that will satisfy you, will, will in the end, it will, you will kill it or it will kill you if it's not God. God is the only one that will set you free. God is the only one that will set you free. Whatever you make God except for him will kill you or you will kill it. So if you're not a Christian, I would ask, accept him. Trust in him. Receive him. Repent. Make, make a trust exchange. Exchange whatever you're putting your trust in to save you. Exchange it and put your trust in him. Realize that he is the only one that can save you. If you're a Christian, what I want you to do right now, if you're a Christian, I want you to go ahead and I want you to grab a note card. There should be a note card right in front of you, right in front of that seat in front of you. I want you to grab a note card. I want you to grab a pen. And what I want you to do right now as as the worship team comes up and as we begin to as we begin to worship, what I want you to do is I want you to think about God's overflowing and abundant grace in your life. And I want you to begin to write how you've seen it. So as we're worshiping, I want you to begin, and just listen, before you start writing, before you start writing, I want you to be still. Just be still. Come, worship, sing, but I want you to be still. And I want you to listen. Because often we're too quick to, I'm guilty of this, of writing something down and having it done. And I want us just to be silent for a moment. And I just want us to be still. I want you to listen and ask God to speak. Open your heart and ask God to actually speak to you and actually show you the grace that he's given you in your life. Because often we don't see or we take for granted the grace that's been given to us. And so I want you to stop and I want you to ask that. And then 
as you're asking that, I want you on the other side of that card. I want you to ask God. I want you to be still and ask him, who would he have you to show that same abundant grace to? Who would God have you to show that abundant grace to? Because only when you receive it from Christ will you be able to pour it out onto others. So as we worship, I ask that you would do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have provided a way for us in Christ. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that um, we don't have to stand in Adam because we can stand in Christ. I pray for your people. I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would instruct us in your reign of grace, that you would help us to, to see it, to know it, and that you would help us to show it to others. We love you, Christ. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.